0: on this week's arbitration station the christmas gifts edition i just named it is that okay with you brian
1: holiday gifts can we say that
0: oh of course we're international <laughs> do you even celebrate christmas by the way is no. that into- no no you don't right not. there's some G- I, sh- the sh- too, I should but- know this
1: but i don't i definitely don't but we always went skiing on christmas morning because that's when all the christians were like being nice to each other and then we'd like go on the slopes and ski like 500 times and then go home before lunch
0: because the slopes were empty yeah exactly the christians were home being nice to each other <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Was that your notion of Christmas growing up?
1: Yeah, it's December 25th. Everyone's going to be nice to each other.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Anyway. Do
1: you celebrate?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Even though Sweden is the most secular country, there is. So Christmas what does it
1: mean to you then? And...
0: Well, what it means to everyone else, I assume, unless you're very religious, which I'm not. It's it's family and food. And, and in Sweden, of course, as you know very well by now, it also means there's no daylight for weeks. Oof. So we have to do other things, light candles and drink alcohol and whatever you do to, to get by.
1: Yeah, but you guys have some very strong secular traditions, like certain buns that you eat and watching Donald Duck at three o'clock in the afternoon.
0: That's true. Look at you all being citizen.
1: It was part of my non-existent exam.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. You took it seriously. That makes <laughs> I, me...
1: I studied all your prime ministers.
0: Oh, really? No. No, no, not at all. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. And if you, did, you would have forgotten by now anyway. <laughs> exactly. I, I know most of your precedents. though. I could probably wing the U.S. citizen test. Do you think they would allow me?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's like the bar exam. As long as you take the exam, you're fine.
0: Yeah, yeah. I might. <laughs> no that's connection it,
1: requires.
0: Future, uh, future purposes. I'll, I'll think about that. So starting backwards in today's episode... Uh, with the happy fun time, we will talk about Christmas gifts and give our listeners uh, a set of tips, basically, or recommendations on what to buy and do in order to make loved ones happy for the upcoming holidays, right?
1: Yeah. I gave mine like a lawyer twist. I don't know if you did as well.
0: Are there any other twists? I <laughs>
1: No, (laughs) no, right. But I think, yeah, we'll discuss it during the topic. But we I kind of talked about, you know, different scenarios. Which which lawyer friend are you getting it for? But we'll talk about that later.
0: That's great. And then for the two substantive topics, we are looking at other kinds of Christmas gifts or holidays that may end up in the lap of some of our listeners right around Christmas.
1: Yep, it's provisional measures time.
0: Which tend to happen or or arrive those requests, like in the month of December, ideally like New Year's Eve.
1: Especially the SEC statistics for emergency arbitrators skyrockets between December 23rd and January 4th.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, to be fair and scholarly about it, how many cases have they had? It's like not that many. Oh, yeah. uh, Skyrocketed from like one to three. Yeah, so percentage-wise, <laughs> it's probably a lot, but it, it's not a very large data set to, to judge from. But of course, it makes I've heard a few good an- anecdotes, even from outside the SEC, about people having to you know leave their families on New Year's Eve or celebrating Christmas or whatever because of uh, provisional measures coming in with uh, no okay. warning, as is the uh, the nature of provisional measures.
1: Right. I I mean. I may or have may have not been involved in the provisional measures that came on Christmas time. But I just, if you're really waiting for Christmas time to file your provisional measures, I find that incredibly petty and offensive. But I mean, if there is the urgency that you require, then it just so happens. A lot of urgency comes in the fact that people are closing their books or um, court systems are also closed during Christmas time. So it'd be hard to get uh, provisional measures in the national court system. So there's, I guess there's a lot of things to consider why you were bringing your, your application at that time.
0: Yeah, thank you for once again defending the community of uh, attorneys representing clients in <laughs> international arbitration.
1: Someone's got to do uh, it.
0: Yeah, I'm just assuming bad faith across the board. Okay. And you're, you're more generous and, of course, also more experienced. So, guess, I guess it makes sense.
1: If you say that 10 times, I'll give you a Christmas gift, John.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh. You're not, otherwise? I was oh, just assuming yeah. we would it's exchange on air. Okay, okay. It's in the mail. Thanks. Because <laughs> yeah, you won't be here in Sweden for that much longer. You're going away for the holidays.
1: Yes, I'm going to Los Angeles, flying ten and a half hours to go see my family, which will be nice. Okay, now I know them in...
0: for a fact that you don't celebrate Christmas. If you're going to California, surfing, there's not a Christmas bone in your body.
1: We used to have a surfing Santa Claus, which I thought was pretty funny. <laughs> of course what are you doing are you gonna be in gothenburg uh
0: no actually i'm going down to the exact same cabin where we recorded like the nine first episodes of this podcast uh, which is where my parents-in-law live they were away for all those months when i was living there they are now back and i will celebrate christmas with them
1: is that a lot of people that are going to be there
0: it's going to be pretty small i think uh, because it's a cabin right (laughs) or a house in the the countryside and then I don't really know what's gonna happen I'm probably going to Copenhagen for a few days just because it's fun and then actually I'm hopefully if I get the money I am expecting to get from a scholarship I'll, I'll move to Cambridge right after New Year's Eve
1: all right so you have some preparations to do
0: yeah I don't know how much I will actually prepare but I, I need to pack some books I guess and maybe I run a shirt or two
1: <laughs> what what are you going to be doing there
0: I'll be a visiting scholar at the Lauterpacht Center for the first semester of the spring 2018. But this is all, maybe this is premature. We can, I'll know by the time that we will air this episode if I receive the money, I'm hoping. So we can edit this out if I don't get the money. So if you're, if you're <laughs> listening shame. to this, I did get the money. And I, yes, I will be at, at Cambridge.
1: <laughs> Drinks on at Cambridge in the student dorm that you will be living in.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the story. I need to find a somewhere to stay which does not entail nine other postgrad engineering students sharing a kitchen because I'm way too old for that. I, I need Oof. a duplex with jacuzzi. So, all right, you, if... I'm
1: coming. I'm coming, Joel. <laughs> duplex with jacuzzi, Joel. That'll be your nickname.
0: Yeah, that's a way to to be popular in Cambridge.
1: <laughs> a way to not be popular is to provision provisional measures. Should we get started?
0: Yeah, let's start with the first one, which is provisional measures in commercial arbitration.
1: Yes, and then you will take over and kind of supplement that discussion with investment arbitration. Let's go. Welcome back to the first segment of today's podcast, provisional measures in commercial arbitration. So, if we define provisional measures, uh, we can immediately have a problem because they're either awards or orders, depending on the jurisdiction, issued for the purpose of protecting one or both parties to a dispute from damage during the arbitral process. Now, these can come up in many different ways, but if we kind of group them into like a general umbrella, they're intended to preserve a factual or legal situation so as to safeguard the rights, um, safeguard rights the recognition of which are sought from the tribunal having jurisdiction as to the substance of the case. Um, But additionally, they can extend beyond preserving this legal or factual status quo, um, but they can maybe require a previous state of affairs or the taking of new actions um, in the case. So then the threshold question becomes for this party seeking relief um, either pre award or pre award relief in um, international arbitration is whether the tribunal possesses the authority um, to order interim relief. Now I I've, was working with this back and forth and I was trying to figure out how to structure it the best, whether to talk about local courts or to talk about the arbitration, the arbitral tribunal. And I kind of decided to start with um, the local courts because there can be instances where the local uh, jurisdiction has mandatory provisions that kind of deprive arbitral tribunals seated in that jurisdiction from the authority. That's true.
0: You've been very uh, thorough.
1: That's, Thank a, you. that's a
0: good point and something that is often overlooked, I think. But can we, can we start by just establishing, to the extent that I'm right, that interim measures and interim relief are the same thing as provisional measures, just to get the terminology straight?
1: Exactly right. And that, yeah, the terminology is like interchangeable in institutional rules and so you're right, interim and provisional. Um, but maybe may interim's even better because provisional sounds like they will disappear at some time before the award, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, <clears throat> okay, so if we look at national legislation, uh, and just by chance I looked at the United States um, and the FAA, and... There is no provision in the FAA that either allows or prohibits uh, interim measures in arbitration. So federal
0: for- arbitration act.
1: Yes, exactly the FAA. Fa, if you're crazy.
0: <laughs> Isn't that some sort of Korean soup? <laughs> yeah, fa.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. I went to this Vietnamese place and thinking I was going uh, to. That's meditation. right, Vietnamese. Vietnamese.
0: Yeah. Sorry. <laughs>
1: uh, So what they do in the U.S. is that they look to court rulings as the only guidelines um, available to study the availability of court ordered interim measures um, in that jurisdiction. But there is no prohibition against arbitral tribunals rendering provisional or interim measures. Um, But in the U.K., for example, to contrast it, the Arbitration Act of 1996 has a specific provision governing court powers Um, But the difference is, and this is, you know, we can maybe categorize jurisdictions, but this jurisdiction is court powers in aid of arbitration or in support of arbitration. Um, And this is key. If I just read some of the provisions of this act, you can kind of see um, what this means. So it starts with unless otherwise agreed by the parties, which we'll flag for later on. The court has for the purposes of and in relation to arbitral proceedings, the same power of making orders about the matters listed below as it has for the purposes of and in relation to the legal proceedings. These include taking evidence, preservation of evidence, orders relating to property, sale of any goods, or the granting of an interim injunction. If the case is one of urgency, the court may, on application, make such orders as it thinks necessary for the purpose of preserving evidence or assets. But if it's not of urgency, then the court shall act only on the application of a party to the arbitral proceedings upon notice to the other parties in the tribunal, made with the permission of the tribunal or the agreement in writing of the other parties. Um, so you kind of see that in the cases not of urgency, which um, de facto is very interesting because usually provisional measures are of urgency, um, but in, for example, preserving evidence it's not necessarily urgent, then the courts will come in as like a supplemental role um, mm. to the arbitral proceeding.
0: Can I ask you a question that I, I'm not really sure of the answer, although I should be? Yeah. You can go to domestic courts, say say the courts in London for this particular example. Is that only if the arbitration is seated in London? Or can you also go to the court in London even though the arbitration is seated elsewhere because the subject matter of the provisional measures is like within the jurisdiction of the London courts?
1: The latter. So um, if you cannot get an interim measure based, like a court in London could not preserve assets abroad. I mean, they could, but then you'd have to kind of like tra- like convert that judgment into a local judgment where the asset sits. Or otherwise, the London court's going to say, I don't have jurisdiction over this.
0: Mm, that's true. Unless it's within the EU, as long as. Uh, London is still in the EU because then the Brussels regulation would apply. And typically, at least within the EU, you could go to any court in oh, the EU and have it automatically. Yeah. So you it's take a judgment, to... you mean? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. And it's automatically enforceable across the European Union. But for London, it's not going to be that. <laughs> Just the case another for great, much <laughs>
1: great advantage of Brexit. Um, yeah, sorry. No, 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 no problem. I like, I. I'm welcoming all comments. but in So let's turn to some other quick jurisdictions that are more civil law-based. Um, in France, you have a, legal provis- a legislative provision similar to the U.S. Um, in their Code of Civil Procedure, their new Code of Civil Procedure, um, that deals with protective measures available from the courts. Um, in Germany, in their procedural code... They have a provision that states that it is not incompatible with the arbitration agreement for the courts to order interim measures in matters involving the dispute. Um, In Switzerland, it's kind of an extreme example uh, where the powers to grant interim relief are vested with the arbitral tribunal. So local courts can assist in taking evidence, assist in establishing the tribunal and the rule on the challenge of the arbitrators. So courts can do all of these things only if the parties to the tribunal request it to do so and they have not been specifically taken away by the arbitration agreement. Um, Now, there has been a trend um, because, I mean, arbitration is obviously considered quote-unquote new. Um, The acceptance of the arbitrator's power to grant interim relief has seen a change in recent times because there were some jurisdictions like Italy and Argentina that said that Um, tribunals could not render interim relief. Um, However, recently, I think it was in August of 2015, Argentina passed the new National Civil and Commercial Code. Um, And what it did before is that they deemed all arbitration issues as procedural um, and therefore all arbitration matters, including interim measures, would be governed by the procedural code of each of Argentina's 23 provinces, depending on where you brought it and the Code of Civil and Commercial Procedure. But they changed that to be substantive, uh, that these mas- these issues are substantive, so they have a provision that authorizes arbitrators to grant interim relief. Um, it sounds like Argentina's on you know the, the brink of doing great things, but then they included that parties may challenge such measures if they breach, quote, constitutional rights or deemed to be, quote, unreasonable. So there is, like, a court review mechanism, uh, you know, baked into that rule
0: uh, this is what what in the business is popularly referred to as not arbitration friendly <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean they're doing well they're taking steps but it's not uh, there's still some court stuff lingering in the shadows um, <clears throat> so that's kind of like the court you know kind of like setting out what the courts can do or how they're regulated and then of course there's enforcement. Um, which we just talked about, but this is going to be usually, if you're looking at enforcement of a provisional measures rendered by a court, you're going to be looking at voluntary compliance as the main um, way to get these enforced. But if they're not, then um, if, you you know, the party is refusing to comply, then the arbitral tribunal can kind of step in and, you know, have negative inferences, render sanctions, or kind of seize control over any property that's involved in the dispute. Um, So the reason why I started with that is because the national arbitration statutes generally neither forbid arbitrators from granting provisional measures nor require that they have the power to do so. So you're kind of left when you look to the national statutes, um, you're left with not a lot of guidance. Um, so uh, arbitrators usually look to first the arbitration agreement and what the parties agreed to. Now, and I've seen this in practice, is your uh, arbitration agreement could endow a certain court or the arbitral tribunal with uh, the authority to render interim measures. Um, I don't know if you've seen that in your perusal.
0: You mean it expressly? Yes. No, I don't think I've even heard of it, actually.
1: OK, I've seen it once and it was based, you know, you have a normal arbitration agreement and then it said for any interim or provisional relief, um, these shall be referred to this court. Um, hmm. Yeah, but another and if that's not there, then there's an implied agreement by the parties by submitting a certain dispute to the institutional rules. Um, so, if we look for, so if they say, you know, we submit this case to, um, to the International Chamber of Commerce, um, that is implied that you're going to be applying to the rules to the procedure, of course. And then you'd have to look to um, ICC rule, if we're going to use this example, Article 28.1, um, which is similar, although, you know, formatted completely differently, but the, the, the points are there as well as in the SEC Article 37 in the 2017 rules.
0: And in um, most arbitration rules, let's be
1: uh, yeah. frank. Oh, they exist for for sure. Um, I just didn't have the time to go and compare the wording. Um, but you have... <laughs>
0: yeah, you have a, r- a real job.
1: I have a real job. <laughs> but, I mean, the, so 28.1 says, unless the parties have agreed otherwise, as soon as the file has been transmitted to it, the arbitral tribunal may, at the request of a party, order any interim or conservatory measure deems appropriate. Um then you can grant securities. And it also says, and this is the same in the SEC rules, any such measure shall take the form of an order, or no, oh, an order or an award. Um, so that's up to the tribunal's discretion, um, which I think is quite interesting and it has a lot of legal implications. Um, and then it says in part two that before the file is transmitted or referred, as it's called in the SEC rules, um, then you can obviously go to the judicial authority or emergency arbitration. So, I mean, the intentions are the same once you get into, if you compare this to the national courts, the intentions are the same to preserve the status quo, evidence, the ability to price security of costs. Um, But then we're still, I mean, after all this discussion, what have we been talking for, 15 minutes? There's no guidelines. There's no express guidelines on, that the arbitrators can follow, that anyone can follow. All you have is what they deem appropriate.
0: That's true. And this is because I'm guessing you're sort of moving into the type of criteria normally used, right? Is that going to come? Yeah, Yeah. because we all know about it. And then maybe we're doing a public service now and talking about it because it's I haven't. I didn't realize actually before you said it that the the tests that are typically used they are not incorporated anywhere. It's just something that basically it's based on practice. It's
1: exactly
0: the way the way tribunals tend to do it, and that becomes sort of a self-perpetuating circle that other tribunals do the same. But it's not like in even in a soft law instrument, and even less so in a hard law instrument. We don't really know where where these criteria come from.
1: Exactly. I mean, I would be re- remiss if I did not bring up the UNCITRAL model law because you do have um, the most elaborate, prov- you know, provision on uh, interim measures, but.
0: True. And that's typically the many of the decisions I've seen, they start there when they lay down these criteria. Yeah. And that as sort of an inspiration. And then they build uh, upon that with with things from other awards or, or legal doctrine.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, so, And when they start with the model law, it's just basically implying that, okay, there's nothing else that we can look at, <laughs> so we'll go to this. Um, but if we look at the, you know, and I'm going to really s- like boil this down to very simple discussion of the, the test or overarching standards that you can apply. But um, the first one I would say is an arguable case on the merits, which to this day is very hard for me to rationalize or, you know, quickly explain. Um, without because, you know, how does this relate to, um, you know, prejudging the merits. Uh, So if you're saying you have an arguable case on the merits without prejudging the final outcome of the case, that's a bit tricky. Um, Urgency is obviously a huge uh, point that you have to show. And then a threat of irreparable harm is the third one that I found. And a way to kind of Irreparable harm is not monetary, so if your harm can be, you can't just say we're going to lose our entire company, it's going to shut us down. If that threat of harm can be remedied by any sort of compensation, tribunals have found that that's not necessarily irreparable.
0: Um, That's good.
1: And that's I saw that in the investment context, so maybe I'll talk about that. And then the final issue I want to bring up is the applicable law um, to be applied to establishing the rights of the parties and the enforcement of those rights. So if you have, um, you know, the, the right of a party to preserve the status quo or, you know, how is it connected? It has to be connected to the subject matter of the dispute. Um, so if you're talking about the rights of the party at stake here, you know, to be preserved by these interim measures, that could be governed by the provisions of the contract. But if you're talking about enforcing those rights, i.e. how you're going to render or enforce the interim measures to preserve the rights, that could be according to the law of the jurisdiction in which the tribunal sits or where the asset sits. So there could be a bit of a conflict of laws there, um, depending on what can be um, enforced.
0: But it seems that the bottom line is, irrespective of whether you go to court or to the tribunal, you cannot trust enforcement the same way you can say, for example, under the New York convention with the final arbitration award. Exactly. So given that yeah, as a, as a party council, everything else being equal, would you rather go to court or to a tribunal to or the tribunal in question to ask for provisional relief?
1: Unfortunately, I see both. Um, in a lot of situations where even though you're going to court and enforcing your rights in the local courts you should still get it in the arbitration because courts may take a long time so you need the arbitral tribunal to render a quicker decision um, there's the appeal process through the court so you need the arbitral tribunal to render that decision but then the vice versa is if you have the tribunal's decision how are you going to enforce that in the local courts uh, so you kind of might want you got to almost start the cases in parallel just to make sure if there is, you know, a genuine need for these interim measures in order to ensure that you get them and that you're protecting your rights, you've got to do both almost.
0: Hmm, that's interesting. And that's good then, I guess, because you can also demonstrate then as the party uh, applying for, for interim measures, you can also demonstrate to the tribunal that the other party is making life hard for you and hope that the tribunal will take that into account. Yes. At a later stage.
1: And I'm, I'm going to get that in uh, on your segment is kind of when you have a state actor in all of this, it really throws a, a wrinkle in this situation.
0: Yeah. Should we move on to that immediately? Or. Yeah, did, let's do have... it. OK, so moving on to interim measures in the investment treaty context. Why do we even talk about this in a, a separate segment? Because with the exception of the exit convention, the exact same rules apply. So the exact same things that Brian just talked about arguably are applicable uh, equally to investment arbitration. But Brian already also alluded to why we care about this specifically, and that's because of the states. Right. Always the states and their sovereign interests, which come into play so much when you were talking about interim measures. We uh, did we discuss this? Or did we just send something back and forth about this recent uh, Igor Boyko versus Ukraine case?
1: We haven't discussed it yet. So Okay, ahead. that's
0: good. So let's do it on air. Uh, because I think it was just a few days ago, as we record this in the in the beginning of December, I a reporter uh, and Thank you again, I reporter for giving us fodder for for discussion, broke a story. And that on December 1 2017, uh, a claimant of Russian nationality, uh, who is involved in a treaty case against the Ukraine, was arrested, taken into custody, driven to an unknown place, severely beaten to the point of being unfit for admission into the pre trial detention center and taken to the emergency care unit of the Kiev city hospital. Oh my God.
1: (laughs) I I shouldn't laugh. I shouldn't laugh. That's just ridiculous.
0: Yeah, and it's not something we see every day in the arbitration world. (laughs) No, thank God. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) exactly. Well, it it appears then also that in connection to this, the authorities in Ukraine have have opened criminal proceedings against him, and he is the claimant in a treaty case. Uh, So the tribunal's procedural order... Uh, that was released and that that is the which is the subject of the iu reporter's analysis as on interim measures because the claimant of course went to the tribunal and asked it to order ukraine from refraining from doing anything else <laughs> along these lines basically
1: <laughs> right sort of killing the man
0: yeah yeah but exactly uh and the argument then of course is that this threatens the integrity of the BIT arbitration. Basically that, you know, the claimant cannot show up and he cannot make his case. And he is so intimidated that this case will go away if, if the Ukrainian authorities are allowed to keep doing what they allegedly are doing. And assuming these facts are true, for the sake of discussion, which we have no way to determine, of course, should the tribunal order this? And what is special with ISDS in this respect and this is sensitive I will get back to this uh, because I think it's fair to say without making any broad statements that tribunals typically find that they have the authority to make these kinds of orders even if it's in a treaty based context basically as a matter of law as it stands lex lata it's pretty uncontroversial. The state has agreed to arbitration in a treaty, which sets a whole range of things in motion as the arbitration machine gets going. And one of these things are the, the, the potential for provisional measures. And that's that. If you if you don't want it, don't sign the damn treaty, That's what right. an arbitrator has been quoted to say when asked about the legitimacy of, of investment <laughs> arbitration.
1: My and, hero. And th-
0: yeah. <laughs> but uh, however... Um as a matter of the law as it should stand, lex ferenda, i.e. is this desirable? That's a different discussion because criminal proceedings, uh, especially as in this case, very close to to things that the states in states of the world feel are uh, essential to being states. It's not something that an international tribunal should do. Criminal law isn't even arbitrable as we talked about before. This is typically outside of what, what we think that arbitration is for. So it's a little bit sensitive that a tribunal hearing an investment dispute on uh, some sort of commercial matter should order a state to refrain from exercising its sovereignty.
1: Yeah, including criminal and administrative.
0: Yeah, 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 exactly. Exactly. Another case, actually, before we go deeper into the subject and uh, the meaty substance of this, there's another case I want to mention. Uh, which is, I think, the most extensively reasoned decision on provisional measures in ISDS that we have out there. It's Nova Group versus Romania, which is an exit case, and the PO Seven procedural order number seven in that case is one hundred and forty pages solely on interim measures. Wow! Yeah, and it's 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 actually pretty good, and it's even they the tribunal they say so outright that uh, there has been so much discussion about this topic in in ISDS and whether or not it's appropriate for tribunals to do so. So that therefore we take this seriously and hence the very, very long I mean this is long this is longer than many words. (laughs) I recommend reading it, and I will put a link up on, on the webpage for this, uh, to this case. But I use this as an example in addition to the recent Ukraine case, because the facts of, of the Nova Group versus Romania case uh, are pretty similar to many others where provisional measures come up in, in ISDS, as opposed to, thankfully, the Ukraine scenario in which the investor is allegedly assaulted and detained by the host state. That doesn't happen very often, as we've said. But in the Romania case, it is the more civilized issue of uh, ancillary proceedings being initiated by the state and the question of how the tribunal should treat these. A typical scenario, for example, is that a similar dispute is brought in domestic court by the state or for that matter by the investor. And one party wants the tribunal to issue an order staying that other case because they are overlapping, basically. Right. And another typical scenario is the one in Nova group, which is criminal proceedings associated with the uh, arbitration. Because in Nova group, there's, um, what's it called? It's a European arrest warrant. Mm -hmm. That's out Romania has issued that. Uh, an, an arrest warrant which it's a similar thing it's the same thing actually as with uh, Julian Assange who's still I guess in the Ecuadorian, Ecuadorian embassy in, yeah because Sweden has issued such an, uh, an arrest warrant which is thanks to the EU still at least for a couple of years is it's also applicable in London meaning that British police are under an obligation to to uh, detain Julian Assange and get him to Sweden if he shows himself in public. Wasn't so that this a sexual
1: a... conduct issue as well?
0: Yeah, what the alleged For, uh, case against Julian.
1: against Julian Assange, yeah.
0: Yeah, 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 it is. Which, yeah, that's a different can of worms. I don't even want to go there. No, no,
1: no, definitely
0: <laughs> not. But it's the same type of instrument or the the exact same instrument that Romania issued against a senior figure of the company that is the investor in this case. Uh, Can a party to an investor state case ask an international tribunal to somehow influence a criminal proceeding? And Romania, of course, argued no, as supported actually by some earlier exit cases. Because this is criminal law and it's it's, uh, some sort of sovereignty argument that you cannot tell us what to do. And the tribunal did not agree with this and found that criminal proceedings or no provisional measures could be used to enjoin domestic criminal proceedings in certain exceptional circumstances, such as when the procedural integrity of the arbitration was at risk. So generally speaking, the tribunal here accepted its power to order such measures as uh, have most tribunals, I think. But then they moved on to test it on the facts of the case. And now we're going full circle back to the the tests, uh, urgency and proportionality and, and so on that you mentioned in the first segment. And the tribunal found that the investors pretty broad request did not meet these tests. The investor had not demonstrated that the arrest warrant would in fact impede the arbitration, for example, nor that the investor having to show up in court if, if the arrest moved on into a criminal case would be an undue burden on the investor. So it wouldn't really affect their ability to run the arbitration in parallel, so to speak.
1: That's a good uh, standard that I did not bring up, which I think is very, very relevant and also very, very unclear how it's applied in practice, which is the proportionality element
0: yeah yeah
1: um I think it comes up in so many ways and so many different standards in investment arbitration um without it really having a concrete definition, but I think that is a big one, and also, like you said, the integrity of the proceedings, I think that's very unique not not unique, very unique. oh, I said it again
0: well, <laughs> oh, I'm happy you you caught it on okay. your own
1: okay um <laughs> it's unique to investment arbitration, uh not that it is something that not be applied in commercial arbitration, but just that I feel when you're dealing with a sovereign and this, you know, ability to govern exception to everything that a state does, it's the only thing with teeth that you find in investment arbitration.
0: Which is? Provisional measures.
1: This specific standard of preserving the integrity of the proceedings.
0: That's true. That's true. That's a very good point. One interesting thing with Nova versus Romania case that I I think I should bring up just because you already teed up the issue, and a reporter also picked up on this in in their analysis of the decision, is that the investors had argued something along the line of, of this. If the arrest was carried out and the criminal proceedings continued, the investor would lose its investment before the exit case was over. Right. So basically, they would lose the investment. And then by extension, the tribunal w- would also lose its you know, its jurisdiction or there's no more case because there's no more investment. So the argument th- that had resonated before with some emergency arbitrators at the SEC, but it did not fly with this tribunal in the Romania case, because they said basically what you said is the typical go to reasoning, i.e. If that happens, if the investment is destroyed, it would have to be dealt with at a later stage at the arbitration and then addressed in the form of damages, basically.
1: Right. I'm not going to really opine on this since I am in the middle of something similar.
0: Okay. Too bad because I sense that you may have an opinion. (laughs) (laughs) I I do,
1: but I I think it would do uh, a disservice to the listeners.
0: Okay, good. Um, uh, Potentially to your clients and by extension your own career. Exactly. It's okay. You don't have to do it. I take no view.
1: Like Joel and Unsetal. I take no view.
0: That's unusual for both of us. It's good that we get to (laughs) exercise. We're too big,
1: Joel. We're too big. We sold out.
0: No. (laughs) But the the question I would like to ask you instead then which I guess you've already partly addressed is what if the state does not comply, right? Assume for the sake of argument that the Nova group, Romania tribunal had made use of the powers that it found that it it had and ordered the state to withdraw the European arrest warrant in this concrete example. What then if Romania just said, screw you, it's an arrest warrant, we do what we want with arrest warrants, investment treaties or not, it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. What, what can you ultimately do?
1: Where do you go? It's <laughs> <There's laughs> a black void. <laughs> I mean, there's really, yeah, the silence is, you know, speaks for itself. Um, where do you go to enforce it? Where, where are you going to go to enforce a judgment against a state that has to do with a action that is, you know, compromising the integrity of proceedings in that state?
0: Yeah. I mean, typically, of course, you would go to that state and uh, just trust the justice system of that state to process your enforcement uh, case in a, in a manner that is consistent with you know, rule of law and independent judiciary.
1: Yeah. Which leads me to what I said before is sometimes you have to do the use the courts themselves to get your interim measures. So, you know, this criminal West warrant can be appealed, I guess, or challenged or whatever it is, I mean, then you'd have to do that through the national courts.
0: Yeah, but back to square one, then the reason typically people go to investment arbitration is because they don't want to go to <laughs> yeah. court in the host state in the first place. So it, it's not always super helpful to have that option available. Yeah, you're right,
1: you. <laughs> you're right.
0: But this is, uh, to, to round this off and in what I intend to to make into a, a standing uh, Segment on this arbitration podcast. This is a very good topic for master student thesis or dissertations. Both the the general issue of can should, ISDS tribunals order things that may uh, impact criminal proceedings in domestic jurisdictions. And also the more specific question of uh, how do you enforce it, or what happens if if states do not respect it? Because there's a whole thing about adverse inference. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? Yep. Which isn't really discussed in in literature or even anywhere. I think that's what the, supposedly if if the tribunal orders something and one party the party to whom the order is directed does not respect the order, that's going to come back and bite that party in the ass further down in the arbitration. But how how it does so and how it actually affects the ultimate decisions made by the tribunal, it's uh, kind of murky.
1: Exactly. No, I. it is definitely murky and it's just like this looming threat and people invoke it and say, we asked the tribunal to draw a negative inference on this issue and it's like, okay, uh, okay. What are they going to do? Yeah, like exactly. say, say
0: bad, bad, bad state. You you will have to pay five percent more of the other side's cost. But you got away with not respecting our order.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, or you know, they like bankrupt a company, like the example you just gave. Um, okay, but you did it anyway. Okay, but they're going to get damages anyway. So we drew a negative inference, but you've gotten damages. So what's the real point of this? Mm. I mean, there's so many ways that it just becomes redundant or um, irrelevant.
0: More work is needed. Let's Mm. end on that note.
1: Amen. It's gift-giving time. Let's move on.
0: It's Christmas time. Oh, no. Back up. It's holiday time.
1: Hand slapped across the face. Mm.
0: <laughs> and we're celebrating this by suggesting a few gifts. You've been I'm really itching thrilled. for this topic. Yeah, I have, but it's partly because you uh, offended me.
1: <laughs> what? what?
0: When I mentioned that I tend to give oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. law books to people on their birthdays.
1: Right. I did offend you. And I stand by that offense until we discuss our list.
0: Okay, maybe I can make you come around. Yeah, but right. I guess also, I'm obviously the bookish person here. I am assuming yours is going to be like, I don't know, uh, Ju- Justin Bieber playlists or things <laughs> like that.
1: I actually have two books on my list. They're ca- we only said we were going to have three each, everyone. But I went above and beyond The Call of Duty. But I, and I categorized them. So three categories.
0: So oh, I Jesus.
1: A, I do have a couple. I-
0: Books. how should we proceed would you want to your list is as much bigger than mine then should we do it alternatively back and forth or should one person do the whole list
1: do your books do one book first and then i'll
0: that's You're saying that on the assumption that, that no nobody wants books for Christmas, so it's, <laughs> it's boring. So I, I will set the stage, and then you can enter the stage with all your flair and drama.
1: All right, all right, great. Yeah, that's good.
0: <laughs> okay, so boring gift number one. <laughs> it's actually not very boring. That's why I'm recommending it to the fellow nerds out there. It's a book called East West Street. Have you heard about this? No. Oh. It's actually been out there for a few years. The other two books are very new, but this one, I think, was published a few years ago. It's written by uh, Philip Sands, who is... Uh, actually, he he is a guy whose name should have been mentioned earlier on this podcast, bef- because he's both French-English, a dual citizen, right, and he's QC. Oh, there you go. It's not a very common combination. But he's also one of those impressive characters who's managed to become a senior figure in the arbitration community because he is a frequent arbitrator in investor state cases and he's argued before like most international courts and all of that stellar career highlights that you would imagine but he is also a senior figure in the arbitration community he's a professor and he's sort of a public academic he writes for many newspapers he's written several books about international law and history and disputes and wow Yada yada yada. Super guy, uh, Where and is I was he based? Living, uh, in London, I think, okay. probably London. And, yeah, he's had some sort of chambers. I should have researched before. He's he's normally in private practice in London, but he does so many other things. Okay. And I think his profile was was really uh, raised even more with this book. This is one of the biggest books I think written by anyone with from within the arbitration community. But there ends the arbitration connection. Because the book as such isn't really about arbitration. Oh, okay. So the book is called East West Street. And the subtitle is On the Origins of Genocide and Crimes Against Humanity. Wow. And it all starts with him, Philip Sons himself, being invited to Lviv, L-V-I-V, which is in Western Ukraine, to give a lecture. And he starts finding many unlikely dots connecting in Lviv which all have had a significant impact on international law uh, generally. And specifically, he goes back in the book uh, to the Second World War and also the decades leading up to the Second World War and builds up through different characters, actual historical characters that he researches. He builds up towards the... uh, the apex of the book which is the Nuremberg or Nuremberg trials Mm -hmm. which form the backdrop to the whole book but it's also like the dramatic uh, finale in many ways basically several characters who turn out to be significant both for the war and for the revolutionary legal event that the Nuremberg trials are uh, they turn out uh well basically to have connections to Lviv So with massive research over many years, he follows all these leads that he finds in Lviv. One of them is Haj Lauterpacht, who lived in Lviv when he was young and then went on to be perhaps the most influential individual in international law in the 20th century. Uh, But also a guy called Raphael Lemkin, who was no less a prominent legal figure and ultimately came up with genocide as a legal concept. So these two gentlemen, who both lived in Lviv, and then Lauterpacht emigrated to the UK, became a professor at Cambridge. The Lauterpacht Center that I'm going to visit hopefully oh. is named really after his son, who was also a prominent lawyer. But the, the both father and son Lauterpacht are giant names in international law.
1: What is so? This is completely nonfiction.
0: Yeah, this is, it has nothing to do with fiction at all. It is uh, on the back cover of the book. It's called part historical detective story, part family history, part legal thriller.
1: 100% and exciting.
0: It is, it's actually very, very good. I cannot emphasize enough how good this book is because it also turns out that uh, the author himself has family connections to many of these events that he follow up, follows up on. And he also talks to a lot of other people who are in his generation, but whose parents or grandparents were involved in the Nuremberg trials in different ways. And legally speaking, it's also an interesting tension here between crimes against humanity, which Lauterpacht came up with, which focuses on granting protection to individual rights, and between the crime of genocide, which the other guy from Lviv, Josef Lemkin, also came up with, which focuses more on collective protection. So these two schools of thought really clashed in the Nuremberg trials, like how should we frame the the crimes committed by the Nazis, crimes against humanity or genocide. And it's just tracing these ideas back through history and how they clashed in the trials. Super interesting wow just to say finally he he follows and talks extensively also to descendants not only of jewish emigre lawyers from lviv but also of nazi commanders so there's a lot of perspective here on the disasters of mid-century europe and their aftermath how long is it it's like 400 pages or something but i saw actually that it's also been made into documentary (laughs) for those Lacey, people out there uh, who prefer to watch the movie the the movie is called my nazi legacy what our fathers did which i have not seen but which won many prizes including at the stockholm film festival
1: wow okay joel so, that do- was heavy yeah right that was a full-on review i'll um, counter with your
0: uh <laughs> with the my, like, completely
1: <laughs> inane like throws in the bucket So in order to save face, at least for the first recommendation, I'm going to recommend two books because I don't have enough to fill to match your one. The first one is called it's 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 called Supreme Ambitions, and it details the.
0: Oh, 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 I've heard about this. I've actually been trying to find it. Oh, really? It's on Amazon.
1: Is it? Or maybe it's sold out. I just I didn't look.
0: Yeah, when I was living in D.C., I was walking around the bookshops of D.C., assuming that because it's D.C., This particular book, for reasons that will be clear as you talk about it, would be available in bookshops. But it it wasn't. It's
1: it's like Fifty Shades of Grey, but with (laughs) law. So it's the rise of Audrey Coyne, a recent Yale Law School graduate who dreams of clerking for the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, And she ends up clerking for a federal court judge. And while working for the powerful and driven Judge Stinson, Audrey discovers the high ambitions come with a high price. Toss in some headline-making cases, a little romance, and a peaky judicial gossip blog, and you have a legal novel with the inside scoop you'd expect from the founder of Above the Law, one of the nation's most widely read and influential legal websites. So yeah, Above the Law was this blog. They have one in the UK, I forget what it's called, but it's very similar. It's kind of like, you know, my law school changed the logo to this horrific logo that ended up changing again within two weeks because the students were in outrage. Um, and then this blog, like, took that and, like, everyone started making fun of us. So it's it has that. It also has, you know, the rankings and which law schools are better, you know, stuff like that. So this It's been,
0: like the arbitration station, but with more people, more muscle, more money, and a U.S. focus.
1: And in written form. Yeah. Um, so then they have, yeah, so this founder then wrote this book, and uh, it just seems like a really quick and good beach read.
0: What's his name? David Latt? Yeah, exactly.
1: Oh. L-A-T. And my second one, just to throw some humor in here, is the New Yorker Book of Lawyer Cartoons. They have a whole book that uh, like um, puts together all the cartoons that are rated to law that they have put into the New Yorker. So it could be a good coffee table book.
0: This I want this, though. I seriously <laughs> do want this. Both of these books. Please give them to me. All
1: right, I'll find them on Amazon. <laughs>
0: That's great. Should I move on to the second book yes. well, while we're on the book topics? Yes. The second book I have not actually read, but I get the impression that you haven't read the two that you recommended either.
1: Whatever, Joel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it is, I, we've said this before, it's the cardinal sin for lawyers to talk about something you have not <laughs> read so yourself. Right. You're so right. <laughs> but I've, I've read one chapter actually because it's publicly available and I the the actual book is waiting in the mail for me. It's been, probably been lost somewhere in the north of Sweden because I ordered it a long time ago, but I haven't received it yet. It's a book called Is International Law International by Anthea Roberts, who's this uh, relatively young superstar academic who I had the pleasure to talk to in VNL uh, two weeks ago. And this book is one of the most discussed books in a long time in the international legal scholar community so it's a little bit more scholarly than east west street which i guess is more of a general historical uh, non-fiction book and uh, the book is in its scope is much wider than international arbitration but it focuses on the community of international lawyers more widely And, and i guess we are sort of member of that community in a wider sense in the arbitration world as well basically Anthea uh, challenges the notion that has historically been paradigmatic in this field, which is that the community of international lawyers is universal and knows no borders. There's a, prof- uh, a popular phrase that we're part of an invisible college, a metaphor used by Oscar Schachter, an American academic and Right. UN lawyer. So the basic premise of this idea which is, is has been unchallenged for a long time is that international law is a profession and a community of its own floating above the municipal lawyers that we studied with in law school before we all moved on to this separate layer.
1: Supranational? Is that? No. Is that a word? Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good. You know all the words, Brian.
1: Thank you new word coming in 10 seconds
0: (laughs) but uh the point of this and i think to be fair it's sort of the premise for our podcast as well that we have more in common with each other than we do with our more domestically domestically minded peers back home that we studied with in law school because we are you know we're, we're doing the same things essentially so we are in like a universal world where domestic law doesn't mean anything right and Anthea Roberts very systematically looks at this notion and questions it. And I've only read the chapter comparing international legal academics and students and how those flow and like what type of behavior is being encouraged in in international law. Interesting. Yeah, but other chapters look at, for example, textbooks and casebooks and in international law and that type of thing. It's very hard to summarize this ambitious book, especially when you have not read it. <laughs> but it. But it's exploded in the world of international lawyers, really, we are in fact, not as international as we think is the basic premise, I think. It sounds like a good book. I thought that
1: from the title, I was like, ooh, like is a table a table? It's like <laughs> no, no,
0: it's not philosophy in any way. Right. In fact, you can, you can really, uh, it has to do with like, you know, the Chinese students go to the US to study international law, but no American students go to the China to study international law. And what that does that true. mean for international law and that type of thing? Even though two out of five permanent members in the Security Council are non-Western states, international law is typically just Western international law yeah. because we're created in a Western parad- paradigm really
1: that's very interesting
0: yes I can very much recommend I have I've read at least 15 page 15% of the of that book <laughs> so I think it's super interesting not just for somebody like me who teaches international law for a living but for anyone who's ever been in an arbitration hearing or a UN negotiation for example in Vienna who felt a certain sense of belonging to a community Definitely. because this book adds to that community like a
1: language. I mean, I was speaking, I had a conference call with council in California and I was, you know, very excited for this call talking to my brethren. And then I just found, found like the way they spoke and, you know, just the that there we were talking about um, the discovery under the like foreign discovery under the Hague convention. And, and, you know, Discovery in the US is this huge topic, and they had such trouble wrapping their head around the fact that, you know, wait, but why can't we just ask in general terms for these group of emails from 2012? That's not the real case, I'm just giving an example. And I'm like, well, it has to be more specific than that. And they're like, but it, that is specific. And it's like, okay, we're from, even though I'm from where you're from, we're speaking two different languages here. <laughs> All right, you so, ready for the banal? of this Yeah,
0: please introduce right. some banality to the, there you know, the is highbrow.
1: A, <laughs> yeah, let me take this down a notch. Uh, there's a game called Lawsuit Exclamation Point. And it is a game that where you operate a law firm where players bring fictitious lawsuits with whimsical premises and you can elect <laughs> to either settle the dispute or appeal it.
0: This is a board game. Yeah. So an actual physical.
1: It's a real thing. game on Amazon. I found it. I was just like, this is too good. Could you imagine getting this game? I would like to play this game.
0: Yeah, me too. This is no joke again. You keep joking. I just, I, I want this. How how do you win ultimately?
1: I think it's like, an, I think there's a money element. So it's kind of like Monopoly. Um, so, you know, you kind of maybe roll the dice to be like, you lost in your appeal please move back three spaces i don't know
0: oh so interesting did you know that monopoly was initially devised as criticism uh, towards capitalism no it wasn't a board game i mean it was a board game but it was it was meant to to demonstrate how the rich take advantage of the poor basically It's... I wonder what the, what the point of this game is. If it's, I guess it's an American thing because yeah. it would only sell in America. So is it to be as litigious as possible and just sue, sue, sue? As in Monopoly, when if you just buy everything, you, you get a chance to buy, you right. will end up winning.
1: Oh, I don't know. Encouraging settlement via board game.
0: Yeah, exactly. Okay. I want to play this. I really do want to play this.
1: All right. Before you get into your last book, because I think we should end with your book. So in case people fast forward, they f- hear something good at the end. But I was just thinking if you had to give a gift to a colleague at your firm, um, what would be an appropriate gift to give? And that's kind of why I like took it out of like legal related stuff. And depending on how close you are, I think ties are a great addition to your wardrobe if you're in a this field that I'm in, or maybe a briefcase for someone in Joel's field, depending on your budget, there's ways to get around it. But, you know, a good like Keaton Hermes, or, you know, get like a a good Spanish silk tie. Um, Or, you know, in briefcases, you can get a vintage one or, you know, get one from around the corner at the chain if you can make sure it's real leather. But uh, you can, I think, find a really good gift at um, a range of prices.
0: That's actually a good idea. Briefcases. And also, maybe I'm way too much of a wannabe professor, but very good pens are actually yeah, good gifts. A gift Montblanc pen could be great. Exactly. And super expensive. But you know, there are also, given that we talked about Me Too a while back, you know, there are women in the law as well now. Yes. It is, right. Yeah. Okay. You're assuming they would want to tie too.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, a briefcase is a male sounding term, but, it, you know.
0: I was thinking more of the ties which are more than male sounding and actually you know mostly for men
1: a scarf also is required okay good thinking on your (laughs) head
0: (laughs) so for the final book gift we really moved all the way from from Brian's banal uh, giving ties to women and (laughs) and into more serious and also in terms of the books that I've been talking about uh, if east west trade is very very accessible and anthea roberts book is sort of in between uh, scholarly dissertation and an accessible book this is really academic stuff but that being said this book is uh, very very easy to read even though you don't have a doctoral degree it's called uh, the political economy of the investment treaty regime by jonathan boniccia lag skovgaard paulsen and michael weibel three young scholars at different universities it's a super interdisciplinary book uh, about the politics and the economy the economic uh, interest behind the investment treaty regime and i have to say that when i started being interested in investment law like around 2010 maybe the field was very practice driven all the books books and articles that were out there they were written primarily by practitioners or arbitrators who also happened to have sort of an academic side job and they wrote all the things and this I think we talked about this before that th- that also meant at least from my perspective that a bunch of conventional truths were established like ISDS would depoliticize disputes or ISDS would lead to more investment or more investment is good for states and all these things that we take for granted. But most of these truths came about in a way that we've discussed before on this podcast, like one, one senior figure in the community said it. And he always he was then referenced in a book written by another senior figure in the community. And that was then cited in in awards and in legal doctrine. And eventually, we have this self perpetuating thing going where it becomes the truth. But what we see now, only in the last couple of years, and this is where this book comes in is an attempt of real scholars by which i mean people who work full time at universities and have a rigid training in various research methodologies to sort of examine all these established truths looking at history for example by actually going into archives rather than assuming Right. And, and economics by actually crunching and analyzing the numbers uh, as opposed to just assuming and this book is a great example of this wave of serious scholarship looking in from the outside at the field of investment law uh, and they i'm actually working on a book review for a, for a journal which oh, i will wow. get back to once it's published about this book because uh, if you're an isds insider like you brian Kottick, <laughs> looking to broaden your view, I really recommend it. And if you're a student or a young person coming up in the field, I absolutely command you to read it because they really do away with many of the things that many arbitration insiders take for granted. And they make a relatively compelling case that I think would uh, or should solicit responses from the arbitration community. So I highly recommend the political economy of the investment treaty regime.
1: That's a great idea, because I feel like the best Um, Arbitration practitioner is someone who kind of knows the context in which all of these disputes and all of these treaties arose. Um, And without that, you're just operating in a vacuum and the second you kind of get on some sort of policy analysis on why things are the way they are, you have nothing to provide.
0: Yeah, but I think the point here, the wider point is that most senior good arbitrators in the field think that they do and they have this surrounding understanding of the context. But the point of the book is that the context is, uh, is you know, it's it's shaped by a certain type of discussion that is not necessarily the truth. So it's really challenging that type of of knowledge. Mm, Definitely as good scholarship should be doing, I think.
1: Well, the Christmas tree is going to be full or the Hanukkah Bush will be full (laughs) this year With,
0: with heavy hard gifts.
1: And the reason why we're doing it now is so that everyone has time to go out and get these gifts before the holiday season. Um, we understand that it's not December 25th when you hear this. Yes.
0: And you can email us for our uh, postal addresses. We will respond with with where to send the gifts to, to us. Definitely. And uh, I, we will have one more episode before it's actually Christmas time, right? Uh, yes. yes. Okay, good. Then we'll have the opportunity once again to... Wish our listeners uh, a happy holiday.
1: Definitely. Well, thanks, Joel. This is a good episode.
0: Yeah, uh, three out of five. <laughs> right. Th- three stars in iTunes. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. Yes. All right. Don't forget to comment and subscribe, um, or email us at thearbitrationstation.com, or follow us at the Arb Station, and on uh, Twitter. On Twitter. Sounds good. Okay.
0: Goodbye, Brian
1: Kotick. Goodbye, this Good morning.